Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I have with me Daniel Geary, the Mark Piggott Associate Professor in U.S. History at Trinity College, Dublin. His book, Beyond Civil Rights, The Monaghan Report and Its Legacy, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is the topic of this show. In his detailed and illuminating reception analysis, Geary argues that Patrick Monaghan's 1965 report the Negro Family, The Case for National Action, was neither a conservative or liberal doc- document, but rather a conflicted one whose internal contradictions reflected the breakup of the liberal consensus and its legacy. The ambiguities of the report allowed multiple interpretations from both the left and the right and marked the emergence of neoconservatism. Conservatives used the report to rally against the liberal welfare state and promote African-American self-help. Liberals saw in the document to go, the need to go beyond legal equality to aggressive economic intervention through training programs, job creation, and the family wage. The extensive and long debate involved issues of family structure, the source of social pathology, and the culture of poverty. African-American civil rights leaders split over the report. The black power representatives attacked its white sociological perspective that failed to take into account how black people themselves saw the situation. Black feminists protested the portrayal of black women as domineering matriarchs and the male breadwinner model. By the time of the Nixon administration, fatigue over the debates had Monaghan arguing for benign neglect rather than national action, believing in an unfolding of progress evident in the black middle classes. After 50 years, the reverberations for the Monaghan Report continue as Americans wrestle with the relationship between race and economic inequality and the unfinished business of social equality that moves beyond civil rights. Here is my conversation with Daniel Geary. Now let me introduce you to the author, Daniel Geary. I have the pleasure of having Dan with me today in person. Welcome to the show, Dan. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for joining me in discussing your book, which is a very interesting, I think, very interesting book. It brings out many salient issues that are really still in play today, and especially in the late 20th century. So before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Beyond Civil Rights. Well, let's see. Uh, I I grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, past several years have been teaching overseas since 2008 in in Ireland at uh, Trinity College. And this is, uh, Beyond Civil Rights, my second book. Um, it wasn't the book I thought I was writing uh, at the time. I thought I was writing a larger book about the history of sociological ideas in public policy. I was going to take, span the whole 20th century, even well, the late 19th century. And uh, while researching one of those chapters, was going to be on the Moynihan Report, when I got into the archives of the Library of Congress, this is maybe 2008, uh, I found just uh, tremendous wealth of materials, uh, not just detailing Moynihan's views, but the res- responses to him. 
Um, and I realized that even though lots of people had written about this report, that there was a whole story that really hadn't been told. Um, and that, that's really how I came to write it. And then I guess also thinking about the 50th anniversary coming out this year, 2015, uh, realizing that there would be some discussion, you know, around the report and a, a good time to sort of assess its, uh, to assess its, its, both its origins and its legacy. So tell us something about Moynihan. Who was he? <laughs> well, Moynihan, uh, you know, he, when he writes the report in 1965, I mean, so he's Irish-American or uh, Irish-German-American, uh, Catholic, um, grows up in New York City. His uh, so central event of his child is his father. Uh, was from a pretty comfortable middle-class family until his father abandoned the family when Moynihan was a uh, um, young child. And that sort of sent the families into the Great Depression, uh, sent the family into a very precarious economic state. But he works his way out of that, uh, especially during World War II. Um, he uh, goes into the uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps uh, in the Navy. Um, Navy pays for his uh, education, his BA. Then he goes on to uh, get a PhD at Tufts at the Fletcher School there, um, basically training for a political career. Uh, and uh, was active in New York politics uh, and is then hired into the Kennedy administration of the Department of Labor. And eventually, by the time he writes the report, he's uh, assistant secretary of, uh, of labor. But he's not, even though he did have a degree in political science, you know, he's, he's someone who has an academic background and a political background. But interestingly, one thing he doesn't really have, uh, we'll probably get to his writing beyond the melting pot, but one thing he doesn't really have, and he writes, the, uh, when, at least when he's in early 1960s, is any expertise on, on the issues of race. Okay, so when he goes into writing this re uh, report, he's looking, he's looking strictly at economics. Is he an economist or not? What he's is political his scientist is his okay. background, yeah. So what is your argument, major argument about this report, the Monaghan report and what he did and what he was trying to do? Well, so the Moynihan Report uh, is officially called the, the Negro Family, the Case for National Action. Um, this is a 1965 report by the Department of Labor that Moynihan writes more or less on his own initiative, uh, hoping to attract the attention of some policymakers in the, in the Johnson administration, which he, he does, in fact. Um, and I'm not sure that there's, you know, that the, the, you can say there's any single clear intention that Moynihan had. I mean, so he didn't really intend for it to be published. Did he write it as sort of a, a career move, like to show his superiors what he knew, what he had gathered? So, yeah, I think it's a, it's an internal memo. Um, uh, as I say, you know, no one told him to write. He decided to write on his own. Uh, he had uh, picked up, you know, certain ideas. Um, partly from writing this book, Beyond the Melting Pot with Nathan Glazer in 1963. I think it's very important for, for one hand. That's a book about New York City ethnic and racial groups. Um, sort of exposes Moynihan to um, some of the issues facing African-Americans. Also, this is a period in the mid-1960s where people like Moynihan, who maybe had not very much personal experience with African-Americans, very little training dealing with African-American issues, you know, this is the, the sort of the heart of the civil rights movement. You know, he realizes this is a, a major, a major policy issue that the Johnson administration has is how it's going to respond to the civil rights movement, uh, pass the Civil Rights Act, but, uh, you know, there are broader issues that the civil rights movement is putting on the table in terms of full equality, especially economic equality. And Moynihan thinks he's got a, 
a perspective on that that would be useful to uh, officials in the Johnson administration. Okay, one thing I want to uh, focus in on first is really his ideas, what yeah. he thought, and then we'll talk about the reception okay, great. of the of the book or what became a book. Yeah. So he had he wanted to uh, he wanted to overlook race is one of the things that you talk. He wanted to really talk about class. Yeah. But in doing that, if he was going to talk about class, he zeroed in on black underclass. And didn't seem to be, did he deal with at all in his report about the white underclass? He, does, he doesn't, no. I mean, he focuses specifically on, you know, reports on, on the Negro family. And he sort of assumes that, he makes the assumption that uh, white family structure is is fine. It's not a problem. So, um, um, yeah, it's a curious report because on the one hand, white hand's concerns are in some ways fundamentally about economics and class. But on the other hand, the way that he presents the report tends to um, racialize um, right. racialize issues. So he's really kind of overlooking maybe a huge number of Americans who are in poverty who are white. Um, he does in the report. I think he thinks, you know, he's concerned about that elsewhere. I think he's, he's maybe hoping to use the issue of Negro families in the context of the civil rights movement to advance more universal uh, measures that would have benefited all Americans, but the way that he presents the data, you know, really presents it as uh, an African American problem. Okay, so, how does he re- how does he represent really the liberal consensus position at that point? I think, uh, well, in, in a in a number of ways. I mean, one is um, simply, I suppose, his placement. You know that the, the the idea that armed with knowledge, you know, knowledge that he gathers from social scientific experts from the government, you know that this, that it's it's up to sort of technocratic elites really to solve social problems. Um, uh, and that someone like Moynihan, with you know not a lot of experience in this issue, can come along and, and see the right way to uh, to do things. That the federal government uh, is able to solve these all, these issues also as part of the I think the liberal consensus at the time. Um, and, but I think there's, there's a sort of broader tension or contradiction among liberals when confronted with the full issue of of racial inequality. I mean, it's, I don't think it's true as some people have said that, that these liberals are in some ways colorblind. I mean, they're aware that the civil rights act is not going to bring about equality, but at the same time, the way that they believe that, um, equality can be brought about doesn't, I think, you know, really tackle the sort of the deep structural roots of, uh, of, of racial inequality. I mean, they're looking, you know, Moynihan's approach is to say, well, if we're going to achieve equality, then African-Americans are going to have to compete on, other, on equal terms with other groups, and how are we going to sort of raise their competitiveness? So he's really focused on improving African-Americans rather than, say, on improving uh, the social structure as a whole. Okay. Now, Moynihan really thought of these African-Americans like they were just another immigrant group. He, he does treat them according to that model. Yeah, so that's, I mean... But they, the only problem is they had been here for <laughs> two or three hundred years. So, uh, did he know any African-Americans? What was his experience with African-Americans? Or were they just sort of, uh, you know, a white person's image of... You know, in, in their, his mind about what African-Americans were about. What was his knowledge of them? 
I think that um, he didn't have a great deal of personal knowledge, you know, of African Americans. He doesn't see that really as a problem because he thinks that they can be understood in terms of broader statistics. Um, you know, he went to school in, in East Harlem and um, certainly would have known some African Americans, but there's no evidence to suggest that he had any friends that, for example, that were African American. He, he talked to some some African American experts on the topic, you know, some of whom had similar views to, to Moynihan. But uh, but really, he is viewing things. This comes out of the, his book with Glazer uh, on Beyond the Melting Pot of the the European immigrant group experience. You know, he's Irish American. He sort of claims that it says the basis of his expertise on racial issues more generally, including dealing with African Americans. And uh, the, you know, the argument is that, um, you know, European immigrant groups were able to succeed in American society because of certain um, strengths that they had, uh, the ability to work together as a community and features like strong family structures. And he's worried that uh, African Americans, their route to, Success as a group is going to have to be the same as the other European American groups, but he's worried, looking at family structure, he's worried that they don't have the same characteristics that will allow them to succeed. Now, in his report, he ends up talking about things like the buzzwords culture of poverty and social pathology, which he relates to a breakdown of an African-American family structure. What was his model that he was comparing African-American families to? I mean, Moynihan very much uh, quite openly supports the uh, the kind of the male breadwinner model. Um, you know, he, his ideal family is one in which the, the man is the principal uh, breadwinner, in which women uh, are focused primarily on the primary responsibilities. He's done from women working, you know, before they have young children or even afterwards. But he thinks, you know, when they're young children in the family, women should be at home full time. Um, and so that's his sort of normative family model. Um, and in a way, you know, by saying that many African Americans failed to achieve this model, he was, he saw this as a way, I suppose, of highlighting racial injustice, you know, uh, how terrible it is that, you know, uh, African American mothers have to be in the workplace. Okay. So in a nutshell, can you tell us what this report says? Can you just sort of give us? Sure. Yeah, so, I mean, the, I think the thesis of the report is that um, African-American, weak, what Moynihan saw as weak and, in effect, uh, deteriorating uh, aspects of African-American family structure, reflected especially in out-of-weather births and high rates of female-headed families, that this was the factor that was going to prevent African-Americans from achieving equality. That, uh, you know, you assume that equal opportunities have been given, but unlike these European immigrants we talked about before, African-Americans weren't prepared to take care of these, to to take um, advantage of these opportunities because of uh, 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 this uh, weakness in family structure, which he saw as weakening both individuals, you know, children and their capacity to develop as well as the community as a whole. Now he had a, he also proposed in their report, is that correct? Uh, a lot of solutions, a bunch of bread baskets of solutions, you know, including uh, military service, job programs, guaranteed income, education. Uh, talk about those a little bit about what his proposals were and how do they re- how do they reflect the thinking of the time? 
Well, we know uh, some of the, I mean, the report actually doesn't have any proposals in it, which caused oh, okay. some confusion over it. But we know about, uh, you know, if you read it closely, you can tell what he's advocating. And if you read his memos from the time, you can tell what he thought, which he hoped the government would do. So one thing, as you mentioned, is uh, increased improve, uh, recruitment of African-American men in the military. Um, giving them jobs, but also giving them, uh, as Moynihan put it, dis- discipline. Um, he also favored um, public works programs like the uh, WPA and the New Deal to provide guaranteed employment to, to men, so again, so they could serve as family breadwinners. He knew, however, that Johnson didn't support that, and so he never actually never proposed that to Johnson. And, and in fact, that proposal or that idea that Moynihan was, was always dead in the water as a policy idea because he knew it wasn't going to get support. Uh, he also supported a, a guaranteed annual income, um, replacing the existing system of, of welfare aid to families with dependent children with a, uh, a payment to all, to all families. And Moynihan saw this as shoring up um, intact families rather than making payments to um, single mothers, in effect. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this uh, cultural poverty and social pathology. Yeah. Um, did poverty? Did he believe that poverty caused family breakup, or did family breakup cause poverty? Um, that's it's. I think that Moynihan was confused exactly on this issue of cause and effect. Um, and of course, it can be true uh, in theoretical terms that it could be both. You know. Uh, but from a policy perspective, it made a big difference which one he was emphasizing. So, you know, if you see um, weakness in family structure basically as a result of economic um, insecurity or poverty, well, then you're going to wind up with solutions saying, uh, you know, we need to improve economic equality, we need jobs programs, we need income programs, um, that sort of thing. If you take it the other way around, say, as Moynihan did at times, that it's actually family structure that's creating poverty. Uh, you know, well, that lends itself to people who say, well, this is, this is an issue of, of values, of culture, uh, and the improvements in family values and cultural values need to come from African Americans themselves, uh, which is an interpretation that many put on the report. So I think the report can be read in, in both ways, uh, as far as that cause and effect goes on. I don't, I don't think that Moynihan himself was very clear about which he wanted to, to emphasize. Do you think that because he was writing this as an internal memo, he that he didn't uh, develop his ideas as fully as he would have if, if he had written it as a formal uh, book for you know publication, and that's, therefore he leaves a lot of things undefined, uh, makes a lot of statements that are just hanging there without any resolution, and that this is really what ends up really biting him and you know biting him back. <laughs> I think that's partly it. I mean, it's a very weird uh, document. Um, on the other hand, it must be said that, you know, Moynihan plays a pretty key role in, in making this document public. So he, you know, he didn't, he, you know, he he probably could have taken the position at a certain point, you know, um, let's not release this thing to the public. You know, I want to, I want to do it again. You know, um, I want to write a different thing that we make public. He never said that. So he, I, I think that he was genuinely... Um, you know, had generally had different conflicting ideas and was confused in his own mind and hadn't sorted these things out. And he's not a, 
you know, uh, it's a political document. Um, you know, more, he's more than a very smart guy for sure. He's picking ideas up from academia, but it's not a scholarly paper and it shouldn't be read as such. It probably wouldn't have, um, you know, even though some of the ideas accord with what some social scientists said at the time, some of the, the lack of rigor or some of these statistics probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have passed muster in a, in a sort of peer reviewed. Uh, journal article. Okay, so what? How did the report get, get into, end up being published? So, um, yes, yeah, so the report come is finished in March, uh, and it gets the attention of of uh, Johnson and of Johnson's advisors, especially uh, people like Bill Moyers, who was his press secretary at the time. Uh, then uh, it actually informs a major address that Johnson makes at Howard University in June uh, of 1965. Uh, after that point, it's probably inevitable that the report would be, become public because it was the basis for this address, and you know, uh, people in Washington knew about it. Uh, over the summer, you know, sort of leaks come out about the report. Uh, Moynihan himself uh, gives the report to the New York Times, uh, although he said it did, he did it with the White House permission. Um, and then finally, it's sort of the Johnson administration decides. Uh, we're just going to make this publicly available because it's, it's already being talked about in the press. So let people, let people see it. And that's in, in August uh, of 1965, just, just after the Watts uh, uprising. Okay. So those report gets published and all of a sudden, wow, <laughs> yeah. it's an explosion in yeah. terms of the responses from, up, up, from across the ideological yeah. spectrum, from all different quarters, people having strong reactions for or against, in ambivalent people switching sides, they, they believe what you know one thing about the report when they start, and then when the controversy continues, they switch sides. They go, "Oh yep. no, it's not as good as I thought it was." So let's talk about that conflict because I think that was a really interesting part of your book. Uh, all the different facets, including you know the African American response, which, which is not monolithic. No. So let's talk about that response first. Yeah, I think it's a very, it's a much more. Um as you say, a complex issue than, um, than it's been portrayed before. I mean, uh, I felt a little bit, you know, in trying to figure out the, the reactions like, uh, you know, those Russian dolls where you keep opening one and there's another one and then there's another one inside it, that it's a little bit like this. There's so many different layers, you know, to the reception of the report, partly because uh, of the manner in which it's released. You know, it's out in the media first and a lot of people hear about it through the media sort of secondhand before they can get their hands on the report. Even when the report is out, they don't have enough copies to give and people don't necessarily know how to purchase a government report. It's not like you can get it at the bookstore. Um, but mainly, I think, because um, it's just of the ambiguity of the report itself and of the historical moment in which it comes out. You know, I mean, this is a sort of a key moment. Civil Rights Act has been passed. Voting Rights Act has been passed. Watts Uprising gets, gets a lot of attention. And for a moment in the fall of 1965, it looks like Moynihan's report is the Johnson administration's approach to racial issues. And people are trying to figure out, well, if this is the report that's informing what the administration is doing, what does it mean? Does this mean that the administration is, as some people said, does this mean the administration is sort of gearing up for uh, a new round of legislation that's going to go beyond civil rights legislation to look at uh, economic programs that are going to uh, especially target, um, especially benefit African-Americans? Or is this report a rationalization uh, that's saying, um, oh, 
the problem is rooted in family structure. It's rooted in these, and the family structure is rooted in deep-seated problems going back to slavery and you know, and discrimination and a long legacy. And there, there's really nothing that the government can do. Uh, that this is sort of it's going to be up to African Americans themselves to improve their culture or improve their family values. So those are the, as I see it, the two competing interpretations of the report, and you get. Um, all kinds of people, you know, coming at it from one or other perspective. Right. So then you've got this first, you have civil rights leaders who uh, can kind of concur with him on this and go, yes, um, African-Americans need to shore up their families and strengthen their communities. We need to self, self-help. Yeah. Uh, Black power movement people, on the other hand, are saying what? Well, I mean, I think the civil rights leaders like, I mean, they don't have a problem with the, with the self-help aspect of it. Some of them don't. Uh, but what they really like about the report is they think, okay, the Johnson administration is going to do, going to do something. It's going to do something more. It's going to provide, um, um, in fact, a lot of people supported, um, self-help from different perspectives, but what they really liked is they thought, okay, well, this is, this is a case for devoting more resources. To, to, to strengthen the family. Yeah. Which, yeah. That's Through it. economic programs, they're going exactly. to strengthen the family. That's it. Uh, in other words, strengthening the, the black uh, male head of household model. Yeah, that's exactly Okay. It. But black power leaders, um, well, certainly they, it's not the self-help that uh, uh, disturbs them necessarily. I mean, in fact, the, the Nation of Islam initially hails the report and they say, well, morning is just saying what Elijah Muhammad's been saying for years. You know, uh, and of course, the nation of Islam um, very much supported, you know, male-headed families. Um, and so they they liked the report from that angle. They just like other aspects of it. But what black power leaders like Stokely Carmichael really dislike about the report is the, the way that Moynihan and other privileged whites had this power to kind of define African-American social life. You know, that here's this guy who has little personal experience with African-Americans, little expertise, uh, and he is presenting a certain image of African-American families. Um, and, you know, so people like Carmichael say, this is, this is not, people like Moynihan shouldn't have the power to do this. You know, it should be up to African-Americans to get to define the terms by which they're understood in the public at large. Now, at the same time, you've got uh, black studies and other things coming up. So you have black sociology that yeah. uh, seems to be kind of encouraged by this uh, report, but basically saying this report is based on white sociological studies with their you know presuppositions and their views of family life, and it doesn't really consider black families with their, within their own internal system of values. Yeah. So talk a little bit about black sociology. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, and this is one of the sort of longer-term impacts of the of the report that, you know, we're going, this goes on into the, you know, mid to late 70s at the very, at least, you know, where people are responding to the Moynihan report. Um, and it very much spurred uh, a kind of a counter-movement, counter-studies of African-American family and social life. There's uh, one of the guys who was involved in, and trying to refute Moynihan was a guy named Robert Staples. And when I interviewed him, he said, although he completely disagreed with Moynihan's interpretation, he said, you know, Moynihan gave me um, the ability to say these things. I mean, he wasn't even necessarily as interested in African-American family structure per se, but he said there was such interest in publishers to get an African-American 
scholar could write on the issues that Moynihan had identified, that basically it opens up the space for him to to criticize Moynihan. What what Staples and others um, say, and they don't necessarily all agree, black sociologists especially, on what the family model, what the proper family model should be, but what they say is, you know, Moynihan has judged African-American families from a white perspective. Um, he doesn't really understand what the values of African-American families are um, and that they should be judged in their own terms um, and in their ability to uh, basically to survive um, living within a racist society. Or even develop alternative kinship ties or ways of, of structuring families that are not uh, two parents. Well, there's some who say that, too, who say, well, the, look, the... The nuclear family model is, uh, you know, is, is deeply problematic, uh, and that there's a, an African American family model that's based on, as you say, extended kinship uh, network and ties that may, in some ways, actually be superior to, um, you know, the uh, the nuclear family norm. Yeah, because there's more more people involved. For instance, in a child, it's not just the parent, the two parents, it's the aunt, the grandmother, it, yeah. the uncle, all these people that are involved. So it's not just two people by themselves, nuclear family. Yeah, and it's based more on, um, you know, cooperative ties rather than on right. um, competition. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, obviously some of those portrayals are... Um, romanticized. Yeah, quite romantic. You know, <laughs> yeah, quite romantic, yes. But, yeah. So uh, let's look at the black feminists. They responded to this, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was their response to the report? Well, I think it's a really key text for black feminists. I think black feminists are too often left out of the histories about the Moynihan report. So I wanted to, uh, to include them because I think they really are the report's most as a third going and in some ways significant uh, critics because, you know, they criticize it from, from all angles. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, both in terms of its portrayal of African-American life, picking up sort of the critique of the black sociology movement, uh, but also criticizing its gender ideology uh, and the, the way that it portrays African-American women as, as matriarchs. That's the term, term that Moynihan used. As a negative, in a t- negative in, term. In a negative term, yeah. Right. I mean, Moynihan does, you know, Moynihan does say, well, they're forced to be matriarchs. It's not their choice. That they, You know, they love to be, you know, housewives, <laughs> uh, like, uh, you know, suburban uh, middle-class whites, if, if they had the economic possibility. But uh, he clearly sees it as as a negative. And so, see, yeah, he sees, he sees to, uh, strong women as a negative. Yes, he sees that as a negative. And, yeah. and, and, and instead of seeing it as a positive uh, role in a community. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so... Well, black feminists have a couple diff- different lines of critique of this, actually. Some say, um, what are you talking about? African-American women do not have a great deal of power in their community. It, you know, they face a great deal of sexism from African-American men, and they, they're not empowered in any way. Uh, other, others say, well, actually, Moynihan is he's, he's not right about matriarchal, but he's right that there is more... Uh, more balanced power, uh, power relations among uh, men and women and, and African American families. So this is a good thing. We should be celebrating this. It's the you know it's the patriarchal model that's the one that's messed up. Uh, but I think for black feminists, the Moynihan Report is such an important symbol because there were many um, African American uh, radicals, male radicals or black power uh, radicals, who uh, were strongly critical of Moynihan, but still supported patriarchal families, you know, and would talk about the um, um, castration of African-American men 
uh, and the need to uh, build African-American men as powerful figures, including in their families. And black feminists say, look, um, what you're saying, it's what Moynihan's saying. And they all, they all hate Moynihan. So by sort of making that point, like you're, you're just agreeing with Moynihan, uh, it's a very powerful argument that they can make uh, against them. Yeah. There's also the issue of the family wage. Is there not, when you're talking about African-American women are in the workforce, they're working, and Moynihan's coming in and saying, we want to make it where the woman can stay home and the yeah. man's going to support the wife. But feminists are going to say, wait a minute, we're workers too. Yeah, sure. And you're going to overlook the economic part. You're going to favor men economically. Well, Moynihan, specific, he specifically favors taking jobs away from African-American women and giving them to African-American men. I mean, he, you know, he does, it's not in the report, although it follows the logic, but, you know, but he's, he supports that. And some African-American feminists like Pauli Murray, they recognize that. And she's on it and, already in 1965 and they say um you know this this is crazy i mean african-american families rely on women's income there's nothing wrong with women working and instead of trying to you know uh improve opportunities just for african-american men maybe we could try to improve the the sort of the wages and working conditions of uh, african-american women who are actually already supporting their families so now the thing that he was that he would uh moynihan was uh, concerned about with black families such as single parenting, cohabitation, working women, are all things that since then have become mainstream. It's very interesting because now it's really the mainstream of the middle. It is. I mean, it's one of the things that, um, to me, when people talk about the Moynihan Report in contemporary, you know, culture, mm -hmm. that there's a kind of disconnect that, um, you know, that the family model that Moynihan supported is no longer the norm. Um, and you can't really understand his report doesn't really make sense at all. If you don't, if you don't support the sort of the male breadwinner norm. Now, of course there are some conservatives who harken back to the more report and say, and they like that aspect of it. You know, they, that uh, they're quite open about one of the reasons why they like the report is these sort of patriarchal ideals. But there are a lot of people, you know, liberals and other sort of centrist types who support the Moynihan report and hail it as prophetic. But, they kind of fail to grapple with, uh, you know, with its its sort of gender ideology, and they fail to say whether, you know, are they do they agree with Moynihan that we should go back to this, or how how can this report work if you discard that? Yeah, you because know, we still hear a lot of people talking about the family today. Pundits, political pundits, yeah. talk about it like Moynihan, Moynihan, you know, just this two people with two kids with in the suburbs with jobs and which is a very, very small minority now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that, I think that's true. It's not, uh, and I, you know, it's very, um, if you look at the, like the sociologist, William Joyce Wilson, uh, African-American sociologist, she really is a, uh, a liberal and, um, it's done a lot to revive the report in liberal circles. Uh, you know, but he, he clearly, uh, uh supports this quarter of male breadwinner idea, but he doesn't own it in the way that Moynihan does. I think he says in, the, in his book, The Truly Disadvantage, he says, well, among whites, if there's a divorce, that's a good thing because it's allowing women to escape a bad marriage, but it's like a terrible catastrophe for African Americans. So it doesn't even, like, it, it doesn't add up, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, does it, does it come to the economic argument that, uh, divorce is expensive and the only people who can get a divorce and not suffer you know, terrible consequences or people who have are, are affluent. Is is there some 
something in that? Um, it's expensive to get a divorce. It's true. Yeah, yeah. And to have children yeah. when there's divorced parents. So that maybe uh, the more uh, more affluent you are, the easier it is to do. Yeah, I think there's there's part of that. I suppose it's also, um, you know, a, a reason that would explain lower marriage rates among you know lower class Americans as well. The, right. You know, uh, um, the expense of well, ain't getting married, but then the, and getting divorced. Yeah, and getting divorced. <laughs> and so, yeah. Married. Um, and then, which also leads you to, uh, I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't. You know, I'm not a sociologist who studies African American families, but I don't, I don't, I wouldn't share the sort of romantic view of, you know, that was exists in the 1960s and 1970s. But I also don't think you can just take the statistic, a statistic like, oh, this, you know, these are the marriage rates, and ex, and, ex, uh, and assume that that explains what the family structure actually is, because it could be that you have intact families or you could have family, you know, or, uh, that they just not, you know, man and woman are together. They're just not married. Right. Or you could have a case where, uh, they're not married, but you know, there's still a man involved, you know, um, right. um, I, I think it's, it's very problematic to do what one hand did and say, and as a lot of commentators to do today say, well, this percentage, you know, single parent families, you know, uh, uh, this means this, you know, right. So now, what do you, how much do you think that this report influenced, uh, you know, the conversation in the 1980s and 70s about, you know, uh, 1980s and 90s about family values and all this that we heard on the right? Yeah, I mean, the, the conservatives pick up, I mean, they picked up the report in, in, uh, early on, but in the, in the 80s and 90s, I mean, they, they really, applied it to every, they yeah. applied it no longer just the African American families, they're applying it to the whole a whole of society. And they apply it to the whole society and they say, this is, you know, there's a, the broader problem of family values. And the report has a very effective, um, it's very effective for conservatives in, in a number of ways. But I mean, it, I, I guess the main way is it explains a, explains inequality, uh, in a way that lets, um, Americans off the hook for it. Uh, because, even though, you know, conservatives are sort of colorblind, I mean, nobody, uh, you know, would say that, that there's racial equality in the United States today. You know, I mean, it's obvious, there's, uh, there are obvious disparities between whites and African Americans. So you need an explanation for that. It is a broader class issue, but often we talk about class issues in terms of, of, uh, African Americans. Uh, and so conservatives say, well, the reason why there's inequality is it's family, you know, it's family values. It's not, History of racism. It's not continuing existing structural racism, but it's 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 an issue of family values, and therefore it's sort of up to African Americans to, to solve uh, themselves. So it, it's a nice uh, complement in a way. You know, it's a colorblind ideology, and it's a convenient rationalization for inequality, not just racial inequality, but class inequality as well. Because I think that's what they're they're really concerned with. Uh, you know, explaining why some people are you know, poor and some people are rich. Now, uh, how did Moynihan respond to all this criticism? I mean, he gets a tidal wave. Now, now it brings him a lot of publicity and attention, and he's lecturing, and he's running around talking to the media, and he's really, you know, giving it all he's got. Is he, what happens to him with this? I mean, it, it launches his career really in an important way. I mean, no doubt he was, um, 
became a kind of lightning rod for a lot of criticism where, um, you know, like take black fan feminists. I mean, um, there, a lot of the criticism went in were in my mind valid, but you know, they're singling him out when they could be talking about a lot, a lot of people, you know, and Moynihan's getting the, it becomes a the, simple, a yeah, simple. Yeah, that's right. Moynihan's getting the flat when really he was expressing the views that, uh, you know, most of the, you know, men of his, of his time and place had, um, you know, and he was certainly hurt by, by that criticism. Um, some of which was intemperate and, uh, unfair. Uh, a lot of it, which was, um, well-reasoned and valid, but, you know, there's no doubt that uh, this is this is what they launches his career. I mean, he becomes a professor at Harvard, uh, director of a, a center on urban studies, basically based on his expertise that this report had established. Which is an awful narrow uh, basis to get for him to get what he the positions that he had. It did. Yeah, it seemed I mean, rather excessive. Yeah, I mean, you take a guy, I mean, I talk in my book, there's a guy, uh, St. Clair Drake, who's a very, um, um, uh, you know, fantastic uh, uh, African-American scholar, um, uh, you know, who had uh, wrote black, co-wrote Black Metropolis, been around for a long time, uh, and he is just outraged that uh, Moyni, he calls him an instant expert, you know, on the topic, whereas Drake is, uh, eventually he's hired at Stanford in the 1970s, but in the mid '60s, when you know Harvard or the sort of elites are the, the press, when they're looking for someone who can try to explain what's going on in African American neighborhoods, you know why there's rioting, you know why inequality persists, you know Moynihan's the guy they turn to. So, um, um, it, it, you know, it says a lot, I think, about the you know the Washington Network. Yeah, <laughs> he's an inside. He's an insider. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, your book is, is situated in such a very uh, critical point between the breakup of the liberal consensus and the emergence of neoconservatism. Yeah. And that's kind of where you've got it right there. And that's a sweet spot, I think, of the book, placing him in the report right there in, in that place. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that, uh, in my view, there was... There was no liberal consensus as such. Now, people like Moynihan believed in it, and um, there were a number of things that um, that liberals um, agreed on. But there were also a lot of cracks. Uh, but those cracks, you really start to see them in the mid to late '60s as liberals um, fail to be able to um, deal with you know a number of situations. The, the top two being you know the Vietnam War. Uh, and um, continue, you know, continued racial inequalities reflected in, in rioting. Uh, and that produces a, a variety of uh, reactions among liberals, some of whom sort of turn left and others who, who, who back off and sort of pick up on some of the more conservative aspects that were already there among post-war liberals. And Moynihan is one of the latter. He's a, he's a neoconservative, meaning he was in his initial Use neoconservatives in the late '60s were post-war liberals who started to say, um, you know, we need to be moving rightward. We need to make alliances with conservatives, um, and we need to uh, recognize that there's certain things that government can't do. That there's kind of the kind of ambitious social engineering. Um, you know, one in many cases. 
you know, isn't going to work. And so Moynihan's a key articulator of those. Of yeah, it's things. almost like they're still, they're still liberal economically and socially, but there's this cultural conservatism that yes. they take up. That's right, that too, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to change the subject a little bit. You had talked earlier about Moynihan. Uh, one of his solutions was drafting, or not drafting, but uh, providing opportunities for more African Americans into the military so they can get training and also lowering the standards. Or so that, and giving them some uh, for the ones who had had deficient educations, getting yeah. them up to standards so that they could uh, be in the military and learn and become men. And it was this very masculine sort of viewpoint, Absolutely. which yeah. is interesting that he's saying this. And then you know, by '65, we've got the escalation. '66, the escalation of the Vietnam War. So you have a lot more African Americans going to war and dying, which is just really a tragic sort of moment there because he's trying to help. Yeah. He sees himself as, uh, as helping, but yeah, obviously the way that he helps is, (laughs) um, is, you know, and one is, I guess points to another feature that often wants to talk about the being part of the report, but quite clearly is, you know, embedded in the sort of liberal embrace of the the cold war and the kind of the American post-war imperial project, um, you know, or Moynihan, he had been in the military itself, but it had been a route for social advancement for, for him, and he thought this would be true for, for others. He didn't wasn't really a big supporter of the of the Vietnam War uh, itself, although he wasn't an outspoken critic of it either. But he, you know, still saw this as a as a route to advancement. And this is one of the things that earned him. We talked about the Nation of Islam before. They they kind of like his family ideology, but they they really hate that suggestion. Um, and there's uh, Louis Farrakhan goes to, to do a long interview with Moynihan, and they print it like in five parts in the in Muhammad Speaks, the, the Nation of Islam paper. And one of the interviews, uh, you know, Moynihan says something like this, well, you know, we need more African-American men in the military. We'll give them jobs and job skills. Uh, and they illustrated this with, uh, it's basically like a picture of death with the, with the scythe. And then it's an African-American soldier, um, uh, buried Vietnamese in a mass grave. So it's not, it's not at all subtle. So, uh, uh, you know, they really call winning into to tasks for saying, you think that improved, you know, job opportunities are, uh, you know, going and, and murdering, you know, Vietnamese peasants and, you know, putting us at well, risk. Because of interesting because, uh, you know, in World War II, African Americans were joining the military because they wanted to show that they were patriotic and they felt like if I show my patriotism by joining the military, I will, I will show that I am a full-fledged, worthy citizen of the United States and have all the rights and responsibilities yeah. until they come back and they're denied so many of their civil rights after they fought the war. But now he's telling them, go to the military, we're gonna, the military is going to make you into a man and what's going to happen is a lot of African-American men are going to fight the Vietnam War and die. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's it's really ironic and tragic. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not something that Moynihan had uh, predicted, you know, when he wrote right. the Reuters report. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, as I said, it must be said, he's in this, you know, he's very much part of this, you know, Cold War framework that produces uh, a Vietnam. Um, you know, so he's uh, responsible for it, you know, in, in that sense. Um. Now, after they have this very lively debate, it eventually kind of runs out of steam, and Moynihan ends up uh, proposing sort of benign neglect 
Yeah. Or that's the term at the ends up in something he writes. So this is a memo he writes to, to Richard Nixon when he's in the, Richard Nixon makes him his kind of, one of his major domestic advisors, uh, because, you know, Moynihan post reported established himself as a sort of expert, uh, on specifically on, you know, African Americans and on explanations for, um, the growth of, of rioting in, uh, in urban areas. Um, and so Moynihan writes a, a memo to Nixon that's later leaked, um, much like the report, uh, in which he says to Nixon, we need a period of benign neglect of discussing race. That basically things had gotten were too overheated on both sides. Um, and that we should just stop talking about, uh, race and, and try to make quiet progress. Now, clearly this, I think it was partly rooted in Moynihan's understanding of his own personal experience in the Moynihan report where he thought, you know, my goodness, you know, like, uh, you try to discuss this issue, you know, you, you just get it from all sides. Um, you know, but when the one, this is leaked, um, especially in the context of, you know, Nixon's, um, civil rights policies and his backtracking on, uh, you know, a number of civil rights, uh, measures, um, and the federal government is really spiked, this point, it really stepped, you know, there was a, maybe a moment in the mid sixties where people were saying, well, the federal government can really, uh, have some kind of massive investment in, um, urban areas, uh, that would especially benefit African Americans. And that's not on the table in 1970. So a lot of people, when they see this memo say, well, this is basically a rationalization for the federal government stepping back, you know, saying benign neglect. And when he wasn't saying, you know, the, government should neglect African Americans. He was saying we should neglect the discussion of it. But as his critics rightly pointed out, I mean, how are you going to, if you can't discuss the issue, how can you really, how can you really and, deal with it? And actually, benign neglect is actually what happened in, in the 80s and 70s, 80s and 90s. And now we've got, a, you know, a, a racial mess in this country. Yeah. And it's almost like we've got all these unresolved issues that never got addressed, never got finished, are now coming back. It does. I mean, the phrase accurate, accurate, sort of accurately reflects, you know, the federal government policy in many ways, too. So, um. what do you think your book's going to be useful? Where do you want it? Where do you want it to fit in the historiography of the 20th century? Where do you think it's, it, it fits? Um, well, I think that I think that. It fits in a number of, uh, you know, a number of places. Um, you know, one, as we talked about, uh, before sort of post-war liberalism, you know, and the history of post-war liberalism and, uh, challenges to it and its own internal, uh, tensions and contradictions. Um, you know, one obviously having to do with, um, history of discussions of racial equality, you know, since, uh, 1965. Uh, you know, but also broader issues of inequality as well as we talked about gender inequality, um, you know, uh, class uh, inequality. Um, you know, so I think it really, I, I suppose, you know, I hope the book can, can tell us about some of the some of the kind of roots of the political culture of uh, of our own time, as well as some of the I suppose the genuine differences between you know the, the political and intellectual culture of the of the late 1960s, early 1970s, and uh, in our own. The, the connections. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of, in this report, and Moneyhan's uh, 
for career, there's a lot of points that really you see later in the 20th century, you see them, still see them today. Lots of things besides race, you know, economics, gender, like you're saying, all these oh, sure, things. Yeah. So it's like he, rep- he represents a, a, the conflict probably of the late 20th century. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, my first book was a, was a biography of C. Wright Mills. And I said, when I wrote my second book, I said, I don't want to do a biography, you know, but I kind of did. I mean, it's a biography of, of a document of the report. Uh, and this report was, uh, you know, connected to all these different things. And I think when you, when you're writing something like a biography or something like this study, you know, you have to go with the, with the history of that document, but with the person, uh, you know, but you're looking, you know, if you, at least if coming at it from my angle, you're trying to explain these broader, you know, forces, um, you know, so it's, that's, that's really what I'm after. And I don't think you can, you can pinpoint it as a, as a single, you know, as a single theme for that reason. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it seems to me when I was reading it, that it kind of unleashed a lot of things that were already on, that were already there. A lot of the conflicts that were already there, a lot of ideas that people were already thinking about. He just said the report sort of opened up the floodgates for people to come out and say, yeah, okay, this is what's going on. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's, uh, so it's... Uh, it was a catalyst, a catalyst. For, a lot of, for a lot of different debates. Right. He didn't, he didn't really create the problems. He just sort of brought them to focus. And, yeah. uh, and usually I think it's what happens a lot in history. You know, we move on. We have all these issues until something happens or some event that kind of brings everything up to the surface. Well, uh you have been very generous with your time. I have one question for you. What are you working on now? Well, um, a couple of different things. Uh, you know, one is a, is a project about um, the concept of integration, meaning racial integration. And, you know, where does that concept come from? What did it mean? What did it mean to different people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how does it get discredited? Um, you know, so it'd be looking at the, you know, it's probably some of the issues with the book and the sort of the civil rights era, but from the perspective of of this, you know, I, I think that historians today too often dismiss the language of integration because they say, well, integrationist is not really an adequate um, label to describe civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King. And I agree that I agree with that, that point, but people use that term at the time. So wh- why were they using it? What did they mean? And I think it was, it's one of these terms that, was used by different people to mean different things. And there's also desegregation, integration. Yes. Integration. Desegregation. Yeah. What's the difference? I mean, between? before integration, people talked about assimilation. Assimilation, and, yeah. Yeah, and what's replaced integration now that people won't won't talk about that. But I, I, I do think it's uh, there was a moment certainly in the in the civil rights era, but also before and since when people I mean, what do they mean? What do they think an integrated society was like? You know, what what was their vision of the future? I suppose. Uh, and what were the different visions of the future? Yeah, does that bring into the whole issue of uh, the American melting pot? Is there a melting pot? What is the melting pot? And what does it look like? <laughs> what does it taste like? Yeah. <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's so, so, and it fits up with him with that as well. I mean, you know, ideas about how people understood immigration and, and the melting pot, because, you know, if you, if you don't have a melting pot, then how can you have integration or what would integration look like if you don't have a homogenous society in, in the first place? So, you know, there's, a, I think there's a lot of things that could be explored from that. And I don't, I think we don't really know, you know, um, just the basic history of, of that term and who started to use it. When did they start to use yeah. it? Who picked it up? What were they, 
really picking up. I mean, I think we, we have a sense of who yeah. discredited that concept. And probably if you ask uh, if you ask people, what do you, how do you define it? You would get a lot of different You get a lot of different answers. Yes. Um, so that's, that's, uh, you know, it's quite an early stage, but I'm, I'm interested in exploring that. It's, it's maybe in uh, a next book. Thank you, Dan. Oh, uh, my pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.